Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 569 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 15th of August 2021 as I record this. In today's show I'm talking to Angeline Trevina about world building and remember world building is not just about fantasy, it's important in every fictional genre. If you write about a cosy cafe that doesn't actually exist, then that's world building. Although, of course, you can go way further down the rabbit hole if you love this kind of thing. We talk about tips for worlds and culture and how characters experience it, using maps and where to find resources to get them created or create your own, mistakes to avoid, and even how to backwards engineer an apocalypse. So much fun. Coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news. So last week I mentioned that Audible has now switched over to Audible Plus here in the UK. So for the monthly price of a credit, I now get access to thousands more audiobooks. And I also noticed this week that if I download a book through KU and I now subscribe to Kindle Unlimited as a reader uh, because I get through so many books and I also, also still buy them just so you know. <laughs> And it has an audiobook which uh, appears automatically in my Audible app. So if a KU book has an audiobook, I get both for clicking borrow. And this is amazing for readers and listeners as it truly becomes unlimited in many ways. And I didn't even ask for those audiobooks, they just appeared in my app. Now, I didn't really, as a reader, I didn't see an announcement of this. I just got a notification oh, your um, membership is now an Audible Plus. I've heard now that this is in the US already, so maybe you're not surprised if you're in the US, but I'm certainly surprised. So, and I wondered how it impacts KU authors in terms of how you get paid, because my books, uh, my main brands, the ones with audiobooks, are not in KU. So if I download your KU book and then listen to the Audible version instead, you clearly don't get pages read, but what do you get? Because I... I haven't really seen a discussion of that. <laughs> if you are a KU author with audiobooks, do you know what you get? I would love to know. But this is interesting because clearly this is basically unlimited. And that's how they've launched in other markets. The new publishing standard covered this like a Venus flytrap slowly closing its carnivorous petals around the unsuspecting fly. Amazon's shift to unlimited subscription is a lot more advanced than publishers care to realise. When Audible launched in Italy, it launched with the unlimited subscription model. And Spain, again, Amazon launched for unlimited subscription. And as I said, apparently Audible Plus is already in the US. Now, the new publishing standard is not criticising subscription model, and neither am I, because customers want it. And I, but I would just rather we could have our books on every unlimited subscription platform. So, for example, my books are on the wide unlimited subscription models like Storytel and Scribd and library services and all that kind of thing. I would love to have my books in KU, but I'm not going to 
have them as uh, exclusive. So basically, if Amazon said you can be in KU, but you don't have to be exclusive, then hell yeah, I'd be in right away. So that would be interesting if they ever did that. <laughs> but it underscores what I've talked about in terms of this happening with audio as well. This is another sort of chink in the wall or block in the wall. I don't know what my metaphor is there, but in terms of the digital income subscription model, micropayments, that is the way things are going. And we have to develop relationships with readers and other forms of income because essentially it does lower the income from the services. This is why we need bigger ticket items, we need direct sales, we need special editions. And that's why last week I talked about Web3 and the new blockchain-based economy. And uh, this story has actually cemented, and I'm going to talk about it here, I'm going to do NFTs before the year end and more on that in my personal section coming up. This also relates this week to Scarlett Johansson suing Disney over breach of contract in releasing Black Widow on streaming at the same time as in cinemas, which was against the terms in her contract. And we actually did watch Black Widow by streaming it on Amazon Prime this weekend, and it was an awesome movie. And I I do love explosion movies. It's about all I can take at the moment, to be honest. (laughs) But what I think about this is that this is only the beginning. So this is an interesting case. Not many actors go for Disney, but um, good on her because this is a breach of contract. And if you equate it to the publishing world, I'm wondering what will happen when a big name author when their books are released into KU and Audible Plus at the same time and they don't get the money they used to and sales in inverted commas are not measurable because these sales don't go towards bestseller lists your KU borrows don't count for a bestseller list and so many of that traditional publishing model is around these various lists so if a a big publisher releases a book into KU or their own subscription app this is the other thing Uh, I mentioned last week or the week before Pearson coming up with subscription I we are inevitably going to see the big publishers coming up with their own apps and doing you know maybe you can get unlimited sci-fi or uh, fantasy from x publisher whose imprint you love then they're going to do super well if they have a strong brand, of course. But as ever, I'm not worried about this for us. I just think if your only model is subscription income, then you need other forms of income. But that's, <laughs> that is not a new message from me. <laughs> a thousand true fans, multiple streams of income, welcome to a shift in the business model. So yeah, interesting times. There's also an interesting article from Richard Charkin in Publishing Perspectives, detailing three years of being an independent publisher running his business, Mensch Publishing, with no full-time staff, only Richard and freelancers. Now, he, in here in the UK, he's... Um, He's well known, comes from a long career of publishing and has embraced the technology that indie authors use, uh, print on demand through Ingram Spark. He's even used the uh, auto narration for some audiobooks, the AI narration. And his challenges are similar to indie authors too, handling all the things that need doing with his books, keeping the website up to date, volume of email. And he says, quote, 95% of books require extraordinary efforts to ignite sales. And it's, it's a really interesting article. Again, links in the show notes because Richard is very experienced in publishing. He has 
I presume, <laughs> a what we would used to call the Rolodex, which is now your phone full of contacts to help with this kind of thing and still is struggling with various things. The other interesting thing is that he talks about what his contracts say and he says he has no advances net receipts royalties based on actual revenue received by Mensch and asks for all rights, all languages. <laughs> which is, And he says, I've had no complaints about these terms so far, which is, to me, kind of gobsmacking. Acquiring all rights from authors requires Mensch to do everything possible to use those rights, arranging translations, doing serialization deals, creating ebooks and texts, other digital texts, as well as audiobooks. And he says, the last one has been the trickiest. Few make decent returns, which, of course, many indie authors find. And as I said, these unlimited subscription models are going to make it harder as well. So all rights and all languages for no advance seems pretty hardcore, in my opinion. <laughs> But this is very, very interesting because this seems completely normal. The way he talks about it seems completely normal. And I went and checked some of his books and some there's an e-book and a hardback, not even a print on demand paperback. He's not doing large print. There's not audio on every book, let alone these new technological options like direct sales or NFTs or limited print editions. And yeah, still, I just don't know why you would sign all languages, all formats, because no publisher, let alone an individual independent publisher is going to be able to exploit all those rights. I mean, it's, a, <laughs> it's very, very difficult. But it's always interesting to read from the publisher's perspective. And of course, that blog is publishing perspectives. And it's a very interesting blog because it's such it's the opposite side of the way we think a lot of the times, even though we're trying to do the same thing, which is put uh, books into readers' hands in some form, or their brains, <laughs> or their phone, <laughs> their device. So yes, empower yourself with knowledge on contracts, creatives, and so that when you do, or if you do want to sign a contract with a publisher, you know what you're doing. Chris Rush also has an article about the change in online shopping with a whole load of interesting numbers about the growth in online shopping. But the key is for us that she says, because of the pandemic, people had to learn to negotiate websites other than Amazon. People were afraid to try new sites until the pandemic forced them to. Now they're willing to order off all kinds of sites, large and small, as long as there is a secure checkout, which is when you see the little padlock in the um, toolbar there. And uh, this expands opportunities for writers who have gone wide. Our books will sell more in non-Amazon sites because more people will visit those sites. And even more than that, people will be willing to shop on our websites in our stores. No middleman, no one taking a small percentage, even a small percentage, uh, except I will say caveat for the platform fees. You will always have to pay some kind of fees, for example, PayPal fees or whatever. So, But very small. As I said before, it's like 90% royalties if you sell direct. And as I've also said, I've certainly seen a big growth. 6% of my book sales revenue in the last tax year was from people buying direct from me at payhip.com forward slash the creative pen. And of course, you can find my tutorial, the creative pen.com forward slash sell direct tutorial on my tools page because uh, this is something I am super passionate about. Chris also notes they're seeing more new first timers joining their kickstarters because of what we offer but also because people are more courageous. They know how to use new websites, how to ask for help. E-commerce will only grow in the near future. 
And Chris says, we have a lot of changes ahead. I think they're mostly good for the adventurous writer with a good sense of business. Yes, and as ever, I'm super excited about it. So in my personal update this week, I reread and kind of line edited really what I have for Tomb of Relics, about 25k-ish, and I'm happy with it. And I decided that half the problem with my being stuck is that I was expecting it to be a full-length novel, which for me is kind of 60 thousand words. But actually, this book is either a long novella or a short novel. It will probably be closer to 40,000 words, which in some senses is a full-length novel according to some rules. And sometimes a story is just what it is and you don't have to stretch it into something more. I don't need to. I have several novellas in my Arcane series, so it will fit well. And I'm happy with it. And I know where it's going. I know my timeline and now I've put up the pre-order for the 1st of December. (laughs) Now partly I want a long pre-order because I still haven't finished the first draft although I know what is going to happen now which is good but also I don't like to stress about pre-orders. Having a long pre-order is is a happy thing (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) So don't set up your pre-orders until you know what is going on with your timeline. Going with the 1st of December also gives me ample time to maybe sort out the audiobook, if my audiobook narrator has time. Plus, I am going ahead with NFTs for this launch. I'm going to have an author on the show doing an in-between-isode soon in the next month who is actually making money from them with books as NFTs. And I'm going to pick her brains and sort it out for myself. So it will be the book slash novella and some other things in an NFT bundle and it will be limited edition. I'm only going to do a few of them. So my first ever NFT, I'm pretty excited about it. So keep an ear out if that is something you might be interested in. And most of the platforms now allow you to um, buy with uh, normal, in inverted commas, currency. So US dollars, for example, and not crypto. So you don't even have to hold crypto to buy NFTs. So that's interesting. Coming back to the writing itself, Tomb of Relics is a novella because my creative well is so empty and I'm finding fiction hard to write and travel fuels my stories. That's just the way I am. I know it's not true for everyone, (laughs) but my arcane thrillers in particular, part of the brand of the arcane thrillers is that it's international locations and depth of research and all of that kind of thing. And I'm not going to fake it for my readers. I'm just, I just can't do that. Also, my Map Walker trilogy was inspired by Bath. So I have used up where I live (laughs) already. (laughs) But I'm not alone with feeling empty. Author Mel Sherritt this week, who was on the show back in 2013, put on Twitter this week, Since the pandemic, I've lost my enjoyment for writing. Sure, I've carried on writing throughout as it's my job. But are other authors feeling that they just don't want to do it right now too? Will I get past my funk? And there were loads of replies from some very successful authors as well as new authors. And I'm going to link to the tweet in the show notes so you can read the replies if you're feeling like you want to see other people are feeling the same way as you if you're feeling like this. Liz Fenwick says, I'm so weary, don't feel like I know how to write at the moment. 
L. Croft author said, I've had such a hard time writing for these past 18 months. It's not my main job, so it's been even harder to motivate myself. I fought it for ages, but have had to accept that it's not flowing right now and trust that it will again when my mind is ready. And Steve Mosby says, yes, I've struggled badly. I can put words down, but everything has felt so much more difficult. It's like the world went into black and white and it's been hard to imagine things in colour anymore. And as I said, there are loads more comments. So I wanted to reassure you. I was certainly reassured by the comments. And if you have struggled in the pandemic or if you are still struggling, because let's face it, we're, we're still in it. Ah, a global pandemic is exhausting and you're allowed to feel however you do. And of course, I'm talking to myself as well. This year has not turned out the way we expected and that is likely to continue. Let's be gentle with ourselves, creatives. And I need to hear that too, because actually yesterday I did my first longer walk. And for me, (laughs) you know, there's a walk that I've been doing regularly. It's like going for coffee. It's about 20 kilometers, but it's going for a coffee at 10, basically. And yesterday I did it and I was, it was not, (laughs) I am not 100% better. Luckily, my brain is 100% post COVID, like I really feel my brain is at full speed, but my body is definitely not. So I did the kilometers, but I had to rest much more regularly. It was much harder. And when I got back, I went to bed for the afternoon. So yeah, I mean, I need to be gentle with myself. So I'm readjusting my plans. I did have an ultra marathon planned for three weeks time, which I've cancelled because I'm. it's just not going to happen. And I need to be okay with that. And so I wanted to share that and hope you're okay too. These are still difficult times. Let's not beat ourselves up. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Roseanne Bowman on YouTube said, Amazon Ads made a huge difference to my own middle grade trilogy. I listened to the interview with Karen and read her book. Definitely be snagging the second edition. I have found Apple and libraries have been slow, but a steady source of ebook sales, even though 90% of my sales are print. Thanks for this awesome interview. Children's books are definitely a different animal when it comes to marketing. And Paul Vin Webster said, OMG, this interview is perfect timing. I'm about to start my first children's book writing journey. And also thanks for all your comments that are coming in on the Metaverse, the Web 3.0 episode, the in-between episode I did last week, (laughs) which was full of excitement. And quite a few of you have said, uh, emailed me or tweeted saying you're excited about the possibilities And Tyler Harrell said, thank you for constantly pushing into new things. It's always fun thinking how technology will change the game. Glad it's fun for you too, Tyler. (laughs) I know it's not fun for everyone. So today's show is sponsored by findawayvoices.com, which I use to make my audiobooks available wide on 42 different platforms, including library systems. And as I mentioned, Tomb of Relics will be going up there before the end of the year. Your audio will still be available in the big stores like Audible and Apple Books, but Findaway also enables you to get your audiobooks into libraries so listeners can borrow your book for free and you still get paid, which is amazing. As well as other stores like Google Play, Storytel, Kobo and Nook Audio, Scribd, Overdrive, Hoopla and as I said, 42 or 43, I think it might even be now, retailers with more added all the time. So one of the awesome things also for audiobook marketing is distribution to Chirp, which is BookBub's audio service. And this is actually basically like a direct sales platform in that you sell books on Chirp. It's not just book 
BookBub, the sale is not on BookBub. It points to different sites. But Chirp, the sale is on Chirp. And you get that through Findaway. And it's definitely, I've had some of my best months of audiobook income with Chirp promotions, which is a fantastic way to discover and sell audiobooks and a way that many uh, readers will be using. You can only reach it if you control your price, which you can do with Findaway. So how does Findaway Voices work? Well, you can choose to upload your own files for distribution, which I do for my non-fiction books and I will be doing very soon with the relaxed author, which I'm co-narrating with Mark Leslie Lefebvre. Or you can use their help to find and match you with a narrator, which I did for my Map Walker series. And the experience was excellent. I filled in some forms about my book and my preferences and they sent me a whole load of samples for me to listen to. And this is great because sometimes people say to you, oh, you can find a narrator by just listening to a whole load of audiobooks. But you really need to have people who understand what are the range of possibilities. They sent me what out of that list I found the wonderful Charlie Sanderson and those books are now selling separately and also as a box set on all of the platforms and uh, I've had a a chirp uh, on those and uh, yeah just super super happy with that. So you guys know I only work with podcast sponsors who I actively use and can promote myself because I use them and I love Findaway Voices. I am really an epic fan of their services. So I hope you will take back your audio freedom and check out findawayvoices.com today. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show and my extra in between shows are sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to new and returning patrons in the last few weeks, thanks to new patron Brittany Hendricks, and thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon, especially those of you who've been around for years now. You guys are amazing. Thanks also to those people who've been buying me a coffee. I really appreciate that. You can support the show at patreon.com forward slash the Creative Pen, and you will get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which I should be recording this week. And uh, I know some people don't want to contribute monthly, and you can now buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the Creative Pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Angeline Trevina is the author of urban fantasy and dystopian fiction, as well as non-fiction for authors. She's the co-host of the Unstoppable Authors podcast and organises events for authors. So welcome to the show, Angeline. Thank you very much for having me. Oh no, I'm excited to talk to you today <laughs> on the topic of world building, which we're going to get into. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. So I'm one of those people who has been writing stories since they were old enough to hold a pen really but it was never my dream it wasn't my childhood dream to be an author I always wanted to act so my whole childhood was spent doing theatre and like singing lessons and dance lessons then I went to university and I did a degree in drama and writing and about halfway through my first year I realised that I hugely preferred the writing side to the theatre side And it was a really strange moment to do that because my whole life to that point has been so focused on theatre. So it was kind of like setting aside my entire being and focusing on something else. But I mean, I I graduated university back in 2003, so the first Kindle wouldn't even come out for a good few years yet. So it was still sort of like being published, being an author was pipe dream territory. And 
I never would have ever imagined that I would end up doing it for my job, for my living. When I finished uni, I started out writing short horror stories and submitting them to anthologies that were put out by small presses. So that's where I started out. And in about 2012, 2013, it would have been, I I said to my writing group that I was a member of, I said, why don't we self-publish our own anthology of short stories together? And they actually turned around and laughed at me. They actually laughed because because back then it was still widely thought of that like self-publishing was still the last desperate attempt of someone who couldn't get a publishing deal. And also you're in England, right? Which I think is definitely much, much worse. And I was in Australia, I'd moved back to England in 2011. 2012 was the first year I felt like, oh, maybe things are changing. But it Mm -hmm. was definitely England was well behind the US and Australia in terms of acceptance. Of, yeah. of, of indies but luckily I didn't let it deter me <laughs> so I what I did was I, I walked away from that conversation and it made me think do you know what I'll show you I'll show you <laughs> and so I, I self-published my first book in 2015 I actually hand-coded the ebook it was really important to me that I learned how to do everything so I hand-coded this ebook because there weren't all the fancy programs that you get now <laughs> so 2015 I published my first book now all these years later I have 18 books out and I make my living out of being an author so I I'm pretty sure I showed them I think I think I proved my point (laughs) what's funny though is you probably didn't show them with that first book oh no (laughs) that that's the truth of it and it's probably the truth of of most careers you know you're just like well I'm going to make a success of this and the success doesn't come in the first year Mm -hmm. I think that's an important point um, oh definitely yeah it's it's very much thinking long term and Mm. yeah I really try and focus on the long term Oh, definitely. So today we're talking about world building and you've got a number of books and uh, box sets on this from all different levels. There's so much to yes. talk about um, <laughs> and we can't possibly get into it all. I've been delving into all your books and going, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. But mm-hmm. let's take it right up to a sort of high level. What are the different types of world building things and when do authors need to do it and what genres might people consider it for? So when people think about world building, they tend to think about fantasy and they might think about alien worlds in science fiction as well. But actually, world building exists in every single genre. Like if you write contemporary fantasy and you create like a coffee shop or a bookshop that doesn't exist, even if you set it in a real life town, that shop that you create, that's world building. Or if you have a a detective novel set in a real place and you make up the PI company, that in itself is world building or like a secret government like division that doesn't really exist. Or maybe it does. Who knows? That's world building as well. So you can have world building in literally any genre whatsoever. But yeah, uh, the fantasy writers and the sci-fi writers and quite often horror writers as well, we are the heavy lifters of the world building. (laughs) So 
Yeah, but, and it's it's funny because I I agree with you. I mean, I have a secret government agency, yep. uh, my <laughs> arcane thrillers, and I agree. People often think, oh, well, I, I'm not world building. I'm setting this book in the real world. So my yep. arcane thrillers are this time, this world, and ninety percent of it is real places and all of that kind of thing. But as you say, you have to come up with the boundaries, I guess, of where you're going to do something. Even like a cozy mystery, like you said, a mm. coffee shop, you have to do that. So what are are some of the dimensions I guess and, and another thing is we don't have to do all of them but what are some of the dimensions of a world that we need to consider? Yeah so there are several different ways that you can approach world building and different kinds of worlds you can build on different scales so you could, you might be creating an entire new fictional world which would be very much like epic fantasy so an entire world that doesn't exist has never existed like Middle Earth or Narnia, which is what people think about when they think about world building. Another way that you can do it is by taking a real place and putting it into an alternative past or giving it an alternative future. So the genres we see that sort of world building in a lot is like altered history, steampunk, dystopia and post-apocalyptic The other thing you can do is you take a real place and you have a parallel fictional world existing alongside the real world. So this is like urban fantasy, magical realism, and quite often the people, the humans that live in the real world don't know about the fantasy world. And because it's obviously it's a great cause of conflict in there when the when the two worlds collide <laughs> but uh, yeah so you can do world building on a huge massive scale or you can do world building on a really tiny micro scale but within even if you're building like a huge epic world you can go right down to the micro which I tend to like inventing things like food and coins and specific jargon words you know you can get right down into the nitty-gritty if if your book needs that but not all books need that some books can have much a much looser amount of world building doing but I'm a world building nerd so (laughs) (laughs) yes and there's definitely uh I guess a continuum from people who who just do a bit of it to the full-on world building nerd where where you are and and I think a lot of fantasy authors are and and I really only I guess really discovered this when I wrote dark fantasy and as you say jargon words I ended up coming up with words and things and I was like oh my goodness I guess I'm world building so (laughs) yeah (laughs) people might not realize they're doing it even though they actually are but let's you mentioned people there and obviously people are really important or people or characters let's say characters are important in our stories so what are some ideas for creating cultures and people or characters that help make good stories in the world building sense yeah absolutely 100 percent. and I in my books I, I ram this down the reader's throat I go on and on about it the characters are the most important your characters are the reason your readers keep turning the pages and hopefully keep buying your books. So everything has to come back to character all the time. It's the most important thing. So when you're thinking about creating a culture, which can seem like quite an overwhelming thing to do, start simple, start with what you know. So have a look at the world around you that you live in. Just notice all the little nuances of your culture that it's probably things that you take for granted, but 
start noticing it. And it, actually, when you get used to noticing all the nuances of the culture you live in, it puts you in this really weird place where you're like, my life is so strange. Because you start noticing things that you've just never seen before. And you're like, hmm, that's really weird. But that's always a really good place to start. Just start with what you know, look at what's happening around you. And then if there's something in your culture that you'd like to explore, like you might want to explore gender roles in culture, you might want to explore like poverty and inequality. Look at the world around you, look at what you can see and then highlight certain aspects of it. You can exaggerate certain aspects, you can twist them around completely on their head to really hone in and make that the theme of the world that you're creating. And remember that culture is self-perpetuating. So everything affects culture and culture in turn affects everything else. So that's like all the institutions in your world, politics, law, education, religion, actually the, the landscape itself and the resources that are available, that affects culture and culture can affect that as well. Because if like a particular natural resource becomes incredibly popular for a reason, you can deplete your world of it. So the, even the landscape and the resources and the weather, we I think as British people, we know how much the weather affects culture <laughs> and all the values that people have as well. So, so think about how culture is affecting the elements of your world building and how the elements of your world building are therefore pushing back and affecting the culture. So always be thinking about how it goes back and forth. And remember that cultures ch- change over time and these things might happen very gradually through the generations or they might happen like instantaneously because of a huge event. Again, I think we all know about that as well now. Yeah, but like a big event happens in your world and it can change the things that people value, the things they see as important. So yeah, culture can change very gradually through the generations or it can just be like a really, really quick thing. And most importantly, for the sake of your story, make sure you're building into your culture loads of potential for conflict. So don't even if you're creating a utopia, make sure there's like a dark underbelly where, where there's inequality, where there's the haves and the have nots, because we all need conflict to be able to write a story. That's the that's what stories are based on. So mm. make sure you're- it- it's interesting. The idea, I think the idea of values is so important. Like the pandemic has shown us this yeah. so many times. And actually it's something that different cultures value is old people versus children. Mm. Yeah. And in our English culture, it has seemed that we value children more mm. than old people. And yet in some cultures, uh, the elders, the wise ones are valued more than yep. children. And even like that seems... In the on the one hand, a small thing, and on the other hand, a really, really big thing as to which mm. groups in society are valued more. And that has potentially nothing to do with the weather or the physical location, <laughs> or the, yeah. like you could set that in a desert culture, like mm-hmm. for example, Aboriginal Australians, who I think 
value elders and obviously value children as well but in terms of the hierarchy mm. of of a group and um or you could set that in a polar landscape and yeah, so I, I guess yeah so for everyone listening is to think about all of these things can be dimensions and you can think about them as levers that you can move up and down and of course we don't have to be original either do we we can no. borrow we can borrow <laughs> yeah. like Tolkien obviously borrowed from myth and Icelandic things and, and... everyone's borrowed from him yes so. <laughs> <laughs> exactly or they, well, you could say we're people doing trolls or whatever also mm. borrowing from Iceland and yeah. that, that type of thing but this kind of mixing and matching is a good way to think about it isn't it you don't have to come up with totally original things yeah it really is and I think as authors, we tend to put so much pressure on ourselves to be like completely original and do something that no one's ever seen before. But actually, if you're doing things that people have seen before, they already like it and they already know it and there's already a market for it. So don't feel that you have to come up with some totally crazy new idea that no one's ever done before. Because actually what makes your idea unique is the way you tell it. It's your personal voice as an author. That's where the uniqueness comes in. You could give the exact same writing prompt to 10 writers and you, you end up with 10 totally different stories. So uh, one very important part of like, the fantasy genre mainly is a magic system. And I feel like this is just so critical for world building. So how do we, I mean, putting the originality aside, how do we make sure our magic system holds together and I guess influences the plot and character and, and everything? How much should we do for magic systems? Yeah, I I love magic systems. Um, I am somebody who loves very very heavy rule-based magic systems there are other people who much prefer looser freer magic systems but I love rules the most important thing when you're making magic systems is make you need to make it feel like it actually belongs in your world it's not a bolt on it's not oh I quite fancy having magic so I just chuck some magic in at the end no you it needs to feel like it's always been in your world I mean it may be something that springs up new but it needs to be integrated so think about historical events in the timeline of your world which of those have been influenced by magic which have been caused by magic think about the culture as well and how magic integrates into the culture is it taught in schools is it part of the education system how does it work in politics? There's likely to be laws around magic, maybe who can and can't do it or when you can and can't do it. There's going to be division around magic. Oh, it's a really, really great potential for conflict there and prejudice around magic. And think about, has it been monetized? I mean, let's let's face it, if like magic, you know, as we think of it, was real in our world, it would be capitalised and it would be monetised in some well, the way. the internet's magic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we, we do have magic in, in this world, but, you know, like pointy finger wave wanding, wand waving magic, then it would be commercialised and you would have a lot of advertising on TV for these things. You know, may, maybe magic has even been completely outlawed in your world, you know. So, when you're building your magic system, make sure you're, it is fully integrating into your culture and integrate it into the plot as well. So it can help your 
main character reach their ultimate goal, but it can also hinder them. It can be a source of conflict in itself. It can, magic can be an inciting incident. You can use it to highlight and explore the themes of your book as well, like inequality. If some people can do magic and some people can't, or one kind of magic is thought of as better than the other. If your theme is about the environment, then you can have a very nature-based magic system. Your themes might be like found family or sacrifice. Um, You can build magic into these themes so that it really feels integrated in your story. And of course, it has to affect your character. So think about the character arc. Maybe a big part of it is a training sequence. I love training montage. I love it. (laughs) I want to see your character burning their eyebrows off when they first try magic. So make sure it's really integrated in there. Make sure also that you're not using it as a crutch or an excuse, which is where the rules come into magic systems. You don't use it as a god in the machine moment right at the end if you haven't foreshadowed it. You have to be, it's something you need to be really aware of that you're foreshadowing your magic and the amount of magic and the way that magic can and can't be used. So like I say, I love love rules in magic systems. So you can have a very rule-based magic system with lots of limitations on the actual magic itself, or you can have a magic system that has no rules or limitations at all, but has really severe consequences for using magic. Or you can write a magic system that has both lots of limitations and consequences of using it. And those limitations and consequences might be actually within the magic itself, or it might be cultural. So it might be like it's illegal to use magic. Therefore, that's that would be a consequence and a limitation on your magic system. Mm. But you can go crazy and really base your magic system on anything you want. So again, go back to what you know. Think about what you're interested in. So you might base your magic system on like ancient words. It might be animal based or based on symbols. Maybe you really enjoy dancing and you have magic dances that create magic. So start with things that you're interested in and don't be scared to incorporate futuristic tech into magic as well I love that mix of like futuristic tech and magic I think it's awesome Mm. yes a a fantasy techno thriller Uh, I I also read (laughs) read in that kind of crossover genre although it's quite I would say it's quite a small one but coming to this you mentioned the word foreshadowing and (laughs) I guess if people don't know what that is it means that there are hints earlier on so that when something happens it's not a surprise but I wanted to add as a discovery so I'm a discovery writer me too (laughs) okay well that's great you say that because I feel like a lot of people think oh well I have to spend six months or 10 years planning my world and like doing all the world build world building as a separate activity to writing whereas how I did my Matt Walker series is I kind of just started writing and some yep. stuff appeared and then foreshadowing to me means in, in editing going back to earlier chapters and making sure there are, there are hints that things are going to happen so you don't yeah. have to know in advance you just have to put it so the reader gets it in advance so talk about that like how do we get this balance between way too much time world building and balancing what's actually needed yeah it is it is a danger 
I'm one of those writers who I could quite happily world build forever and never actually write the Blooming book itself. And so I have to be really disciplined. And yeah, because I am a discovery writer, I I have started writing with just one world building idea. Like I want to write about a world where this one cool thing happens. And a lot of my world building is done while I'm writing my first draft. So yes, very much my foreshadowing is done in editing. But I do like to do a little bit beforehand, but it's usually just in my head. So I might spend three months doing world building, but only in my head. And it's while I'm writing something else usually. But it can become a distraction from actually writing. It can become a form of procrastination. And I think we all know what happens when you fall down a research rabbit hole as well. That can happen. So basically, you are going to do more world building than you actually end up with in the book. That I think I think you're that's always going to happen, that you'll always do a little bit more. But you need to know enough about your world that you know why things are the way they are. Because that's how you make things make sense in your world and make it feel like it belongs in the world and in your story. And that's how you make it affect your character. So you need to know enough about your world that why things are the way that they are. But your readers might not need to know all of that. So there are three things that your world building needs to do in your book. One is to reveal character. Two is to push the plot forward. And three is to explore themes. And if they're not doing any of those things, then it is probably info dumping. You probably don't need it and you can probably leave it out. Now, we like to put lots of colourful things in our world and like, oh, that's fun. I'm I'm a sucker for carnivals. I love writing <laughs> carnivals and markets <laughs> into my world. So I have to be really disciplined. And quite often, yes, it comes in editing for me because I'm a discovery writer that I have to go back and go, okay, this world building, although I love it, it's not actually doing anything for the story at all. And it's just like, it's flabbiness. It's just stuff there for world building's sake. And if it's not helping push the plot forward or helping your character arc or exploring the themes, then sorry, you have to kill your darlings. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard. Or or turn it into something that helps something else. So like obviously um, the the tavern scene in in epic fantasy or even in sci-fi now, you know, like the Star Wars bar. Cantina. Yeah, the cantina (laughs) now appears in everything. And if it's not there, people get upset. It's like, where's the bar scene? Where's the cantina scene? Uh, But you can use that to move character forward, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. You have to use it for something else. You can't just have a random market. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sadly. (laughs) Sadly. But I have a lot of tombs and crypts and archaeological things. And uh, you just have to find a way to include your your world building in your plot and your character. And you can start wherever. I'm I'm so glad you're a discovery writer because... I feel like with my Matt Walker series, it was like, oh, what would happen if you could walk through maps? Like that was literally where I started. And then as Mm. you said, you thought about it. And I thought about, well, what does that mean? Where does it go if you carry on? Like, well, how could that happen? How could that happen? So you can, as you say, world build in your head or... Let's talk about maps, because I feel like map making has become a sort of 
fetish uh, object. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah, in the world building sense. And, and now, first yep. of all, it can be absolutely amazing. And if you have any physical artistic ability, then go for it. You know, do definitely the, do the math. <laughs> but so many of us don't necessarily have that skill. So, do we need maps? What are your recommendations around around maps? Okay, when you're writing your first draft, I would say in 99% of cases, you need a map. Okay, have a map next to you because it is so useful when you're writing. It's so easy to get lost in your world. And if you have a book and your characters are traveling from A to B and B point is a coastal town at one moment and then halfway through the next book or even in the next book of the series, if it's a mountain town, people will notice, your readers will notice. So having a map, I would say have one. When you're writing and you've got that map next to you, that's all it's for. Do you know what? No one need ever see it, ever. If it's a childish scrawl on the back of an envelope, that's fine. That's fine because it only needs to be useful to you. So you don't need to be an amazing artist to have a map next to you when you're writing. Believe me, I'm not an amazing artist at all. Don't worry about it when you're writing. If you want to include a map in your book, there is loads of help out there for us less artistically inclined people, which is brilliant. (laughs) We love that. One of the things you can do is you can hire an artist and there are actually an increasing number of artists out there who literally specialise in making fantasy maps. And I tell you, they are absolutely stunning. <laughs> well, where, <laughs> are you, where are you getting those people from? Like, where, So where you... Instagram is a good place to get people. And there's a lot on Fiverr as well. Now, I, I've never hired, I haven't yet hired a a map artist. So I don't have a specific recommendation of one that I can give, but you go into um, like a fancy author group on Facebook, ask for a recommendation. You'll probably be bombarded with with recommendations. So Mm. there there are loads of people and I see it more and more often, people making these amazing they're so beautiful. Yes, it is definitely a fetish. (laughs) But (laughs) Sorry, carry on. There are other places that you can get help as well. Like there's this great program called Incarnate. It's spelled Inc as in I-N-K. And you can just go on online and use that and you can create a map. Just be careful because if you want to use the map that you create commercially, you have to pay for a license. Actually, I've been reading a lot of map drawing books recently. The two that have been really helpful to me is uh, Fancy Map Maker by Jared Blando, Fancy Mapping by Wesley Jones. Honestly, going through those two books and just practicing my drawing, I have got so much better at drawing maps. And yeah, those two books are absolutely fantastic. So there's a lot of help out of, out there for you. Hmm. That's great. I was going to say, I the only one I've done is my the co-written book I did with Jay Thorne, Risen Gods, which is set in New Zealand. So we did get a map of New Zealand done, and we we used ninety nine designs. It was uh, yeah, twenty fifteen, and things have moved on since then. But we were really happy with that, and because it's a real place anyway, it wasn't too hard. But I love those resources, and as you say, I think things have moved on so much, and there's an increasing amount of artistic talent that you. 
can find to help you. But as you said, be really careful about the licensing, right? Yes. And, and yeah. also licensing around merchandise because, mm-hmm. you you know, there's a difference between using a map in the front of a book and using it on a T-shirt or yeah. as the basis of a game or all these things. So definitely check your contracts with designers around merchandise. So maps is something that's super fun. But what are some of the things that people get wrong with world building? Any examples of big things that go wrong and not so good worlds or any problems you see? Yeah, so probably the main mistake that people make with world building is not integrating it into their world properly so that it doesn't feel like it belongs in the story and it's just bolt-on stuff, like an afterthought. Please don't make world building your afterthought. (laughs) (laughs) That's the the biggest mistake that people make. Another one is including too much world building, going in the opposite direction and just info dumping, just like pouring out pages and pages of history. Yeah, the best way to explain your world building to your readers is through showing it rather we all know the old adage show don't tell and it's exactly the same with world building there may be times when you do need to tell a bit of world building to explain something in your world but it's much better to show it telling your readers yeah you might have to do it now and again but it's not the ideal having conversation characters have a conversation and explaining part of your world you know, that's slightly better, but you often get that, oh, as you know, blah, 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 which is it's <laughs> the same as, as info you know. dumping. It's exactly the same as info dumping. <laughs> You've just put that info dumping dialogue. But the best way to reveal your world building is by showing it through your character's actions and the way the world affects them. And most importantly, your character's reaction to something because every time you put something new in your world that is unfamiliar to your readers so something that doesn't exist in reality you're adding to their learning curve and you want to make that learning curve as gentle as possible for them so that they're not hugely confused or overwhelmed by just information let your characters show your readers how they should feel about the world like if unicorns are totally normal in your world, then your characters won't react to them. They barely even notice them. And that's a big clue to your readers that they are normal in that world. So yeah, including too much makes that learning curve for your readers way too steep and they'll just be overwhelmed and confused. So good examples of world building, let's face it, we have to mention Middle Earth. It's kind of the the gold standard there. I read a lot of books by M.R. Carey, and he is fantastic at his world building. What he's particularly very good at is building a culture that really affects the characters and showing the culture through what the characters do, like their habits and their rituals and things like that. I'm currently reading his Rampart trilogy, which is post-apocalyptic. And yeah, it's a really, really good example of showing how culture affects the characters and just the way they live their everyday lives. Less good examples of world building or ones that I have little niggles with is 
for one it's Narnia like I'm really sorry I love <laughs> I love Narnia I'm obsessed with the Chronicles of Narnia so this isn't something I'm not bashing Chronicles of Narnia I love it but it does tend to use magic as a crutch excuse for things like whenever there's a problem or anything it's like oh it's just magic <laughs> you know it does it does tend to use magic as a crutch a little bit too much but I do I do love Narnia and the other one is uh James Cameron's Avatar movie which again (laughs) I love I love it but oh there are some real niggles in the way of the evolution of the creatures like the way that the Na'vi bond to the animals and basically it's like mind control and from an evolutionary standpoint that's a really bizarre vulnerability that would evolve in animals because it goes completely against survival instinct. But it doesn't matter because that world does what it set out to do, which was basically to look beautiful for 3D movies, which it did. It is a stunning movie. so <laughs> and, and there's another one coming at some point. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. It's yeah, great. So it's just little niggles really and and but that, that those are two good examples because of course that uh everyone probably will have in their mind that world of james cameron that, that mm. he, they built and fit visually that's an incredible world yes it really it was built for visual impact and uh narnia i feel like well and was built for as you say it was built for the visual screen the big screen narnia is a christian parable yes and it's yep. almost like that was the reason for it and yeah. so perhaps our reasoning behind our world building is important. And I was also thinking this is genre specific. So you take the big historical epics like Edward Rutherford's and James Clavell and James Michener, you know, these sort of big doorstop books mm-hmm. where actually... <laughs> If you do an info dump as a description of how a cathedral is built, <laughs> yeah, you know that can actually be part of what, say, a historical fiction reader wants, but done in a way that is genre specific versus an urban fantasy setting with vampires fighting or whatever. You you don't want to spend that long discussing the building materials. So yeah, it's very genre specific. It is, yeah, because the different readers of the different genres have very different expectations and. And they want very different things. So yeah, epic fantasy readers, they'll expect a whole, they'll quite happily read a whole chapter of history. But yeah, urban fantasy readers would be far less accepting of that. Yeah. And in fact, well, my husband is, a, is only will listen to audiobooks that are at least 40 hours long. He just, he, lo- he won't accept a, a, an epic fantasy series unless he has to spend 400 hours. On, and I'm not joking, these sort of massive epic fantasy series. And yeah, you have to think about your readers. But again, we write what we love. And mm. so you should know what your readers want. Um, so we could talk about this forever. But I do want to ask you, one of your books is How to Destroy the World, An Author's Guide to Writing dystopia and post-apocalypse which I love I'm always trying to destroy the world why <laughs> so, not <laughs> but it's so if we know that we're going to be setting something in say a post-apocalyptic setting how do we backwards engineer the world and not sort of front load it all I guess into the backstory yeah backwards engineering is fantastic in world building because as writers we're so often used to that question what if you know, like it's it's held up as the ultimate, like you should always know the what if of your book. So what if this happened? What would be the consequences of it? But with backwards engineering, 
you can start with the consequence. So then you need to ask yourself why. Why has the world ended up like this all the time? And a lot of time, this is where my world building ideas start. So many of my stories start from a world building idea and it's so often the consequence of something. And then I have to work backwards to find out why. So for example, you might have an idea where you want to write about a world where surrogates are billionaires. So you've got to ask yourself, why? Why are surrogates all billionaires? Why do they charge and earn so much for their services? So you might track it back to like a mass infertility issue in the world, or you might track it back to genetic defects, or you might track it back to like a growing obsession with athletic bodies and women just don't want to get pregnant anymore. So you can absolutely backwards engineer stuff, which is really good because sometimes your whole world building is just based on a really cool idea where you're like, I really want to write about flying cars, you know, backwards engineer it and work out how they ended up in your world. It's a really, really good way. So just to keep asking yourself why and work your way backwards. And I'm a big fan of spider diagrams and mind mapping because for one thing, it allows you to explore loads of different paths. But start with your consequence right in the middle of your page and explore all of these backwards engineering sort of legs outwards to see what works. Choose which one you want to do and you can start your story at any point along that timeline. So you can start your story, if you're writing post-apocalypse, you can start your story at the apocalyptic event. And again, it comes back to showing and not telling. So you don't want to info dump just a chapter of history of how this happened. You know, show it through your character's actions, show it through characters having conversations, but not that as conversations. So you can start anywhere you want along the timeline. You can show the world falling apart. You can show the consequences of the world falling apart. Or you can show both, obviously. You can have the apocalyptic event right in the middle of your novel if you want to. But yeah, backwards engineering is as completely valid as forwards engineering things. So you don't actually need to know 10 million years of history of your world. You might want to. Some people do. That's fine if that's what you're into. But you don't need to know 10 million years worth of history. And your readers certainly don't need to know it. And especially if, you, if you're writing in this world, which a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction is, then you don't need to write a whole load of history because people know it, because it's the, the world they live in. So you can start at any point and start, just start to show where, what's going wrong because your readers want to see what's changing, what's different. And most importantly, you wanna, your readers want to see you putting your characters through absolute hell. And <laughs> that's the important bit. You know, when you're writing post-apocalypse and dystopia, just be mean to your characters for like a whole novel. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. And and I I mean I do read some of this and it just makes you feel good about, you know, living in, in a culture, even during a pandemic. You're like, mm. well, at least it's not like that pandemic in that book. <laughs> I mean, like a Stephen King the stand pandemic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Things could always be worse. But I, I always think of post apoc and dystopia as very hopeful genres. Like oh, yeah. people mm. 
often think they're like really depressing. And I'm like, no, what you do is you get this marginalized character and you face them against insurmountable odds and then you watch them succeed. And what's more hopeful than that? Like if they can do it, then surely we can as well. You know, if this marginalized person can change the world forever and make it better, then we can as well. Yeah. One, mm. they're, they're my favorite genres. I love it. Yeah. And I mean, hot coming back to horror where you started as well, I feel like horror is very hopeful because mm. it's not about the monster. It's about fighting the monster. And yeah. and hopefully somebody left at the end. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> the monster. But we could talk about this forever, but we're going to end here. But tell us briefly about your Unstoppable Authors podcast and also the books you have and all the various things you have available. Yeah, so I am the co-host of Unstoppable Authors with H.B. Line, who is also a fantasy author. She writes dark fantasy. And you can find us, we're, we're across all of the platforms, so iTunes, Spotify, all of the others you want to listen on. And you can find us at unstoppableauthors.com. We talk about indie authoring and all the things to do with that. We just have a lot of good fun on that podcast. I actually started it solo as a world building podcast, but kind of gave up and Holly came along and rescued it. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, all of my books. So I've currently got uh, four world building books out. They are available in ebook, but they're also available in paperback. The thing about the paperbacks is you get lots of space. It's it's a workbook, so you've got loads of blank pages, so you can write all your answers to all the prompts and everything. And then you've got a world building Bible that you can have next to you while you're writing, so you don't forget anything, which is perfect. And my paperbacks are available on Amazon. My ebooks I publish wide, so they're available anywhere you can get ebooks and direct from me as well. And my website is angelinetravina.co.uk or you can get there from .com. And I'm all over social media as well, Instagram mostly, but also Facebook and Twitter. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Angeline. That was great. Thank you so much for having me. So I hope you found the interview with Angeline interesting and that it gave you some tips for your world building. Next week, I'm talking to David Crissinger on Stories Are What Save Us, a survivor's guide to writing about trauma, which is really about understanding what pain and trauma is on a personal level and the fact that it's different for everyone, as well as thoughts on writing these difficult topics in memoir. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.